Let's listen to God's Word now from 1 John 4, beginning at verse 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, so that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. I'm sorry. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected within us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, God. Please be seated. Let's pray before we have a word for the kids and we look at this passage. So let's pray. Let me encourage you right now to just sit back and know that Jesus said, My sheep will hear my voice. Um, so I just pray that you would uh, have your heart and mind open to how he might speak to you today. And then I encourage you to pray quietly for somebody you're sitting next to. So just take a moment and pray for us to hear the Good Shepherd's voice today. And take a few moments and pray for me that I can hear the Good Shepherd's uh, voice as we uh, look at this wonderful passage today. Jesus, we thank you this morning that we are the sheep of your pasture and you are the good shepherd. And for this beautiful phrase in here, uh, as you are, so we are in the world right now. And so we thank you for the mystery and the power of our union with you right now, that you're interceding for us, that you're an advocate for us. And again, we would know that you're here for us, Jesus. And we ask this for the Father's glory. Amen. So, word for the kids this morning before we dive into looking at this passage. So, if I was to sit down with you over lunch today and say, what is your favorite smell? What is your favorite smell? What would you say? Or what is the smell that you love the most? So, one Sunday when I was preaching a few years ago back in North Carolina, um, 
uh, I led off the sermon by letting people talk to me out loud. So I know some of you are eager to go, I'm ready to share. <laughs> Hold back, okay, not today. But uh, so I just threw it out there thinking, you know, people would say flowers and cut grass and, you know, sort of traditional things you might think of. So one of our members who is an owner-operator of Chick-fil-A there in North Carolina, he immediately shouts, I love the smell of chicken. <laughs> and everybody just started laughing, kids. It was just so funny. And then one of our leaders, he said this, kids. He said, I love the smell of grease. And you go, what? You know, now I know him, but a lot of you wouldn't know him. So if you heard our elder back in North Carolina say, I love the smell of grease. He's a grease monkey. So for those, you have to ask your parents later what that means. But he loves to work on cars. Now he's a general contractor. He built a garage behind his house so that he can work on other people's cars. But if we were to go see John this afternoon, he would tell you, he loves the smell of grease. And we would walk into his garage, and what would we smell? We smell grease. Um, what's one of my favorite smells or smells that I love? I love the smell of the ocean. So I'm eager to get down on the Cape and walk along a lot of the beaches here. The smell of salt air makes me feel love. Because my parents love the beach, they love the ocean, and they built into me the love of the ocean. And there's nothing quite the, like the smell for me of the smell of salt air. So again, what's a smell you love? Here in this passage, the Apostle John is going to talk to us about uh, love. So what's a smell you love? A smell that connects you to the meaning of the word of feeling loved. And I want you to think about that. And then after the service, tell me a smell that you love. Well, here in this passage, um, we're looking at this development from the Apostle John. And in 1 John, you see three things. One, it's a picture of the, who Jesus is, uh, that he is God, he is our Savior, he's our advocate. There are lots of ways that John talks about that. But John puts a premium on love. It is the greatest gift that God gives us through the fruit of the Spirit, love that one of the things that's to define us is love. Many of you are familiar with Martin Luther King Jr., and if you've not read it and you want to get to know him, read his series of sermons called Strength to Love. And in the book, he dedicates his parent to the book to his parents because he talks about how they taught him how to find strength to love our enemies. Find strength to love people we disagree with. It's called strength to love. And Coretta King uh, writes a foreword to the, the book saying, she says that most of the people in the civil rights movement would say it was that book that was definitive for them and getting a hold of the power to really work towards the whole civil rights issues and all that. We've been reading a book this summer called Gentle and Lowly. And in the book, uh, uh, Dane Orland takes us through the gentle and lowly heart of Christ. The subtitle of the book is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And you get to chapter 10, and again, kids, you can listen again to this, um, is that the book, uh, chapter 10, is about a sermon that his famous pastor who lived in Massachusetts back in the 1700s, he preached for children. 
And in this uh, sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached in Northampton, Mass., he, um, he unfolds to children how important it is to know the heart, the beauty of the heart of our Savior. And as Ortland is trying to articulate this uh, for all the, of us who are reading it, he says that the challenge to parents, but this is a challenge we can say to each other as we try and help each other grow, is to make the tender heart of Christ irresistible and unforgettable that we would be unable to believe that our sins and sufferings ever repel Christ. Um, I want you to think with me this morning as we look at this passage, is the love of God irresistible to you? Is the love of Jesus the sweetest thing about you? Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of who thou art because I am finding out the greatness of your loving heart to know that irresistible love, but also to know this love which is unforgettable. When we look at this passage, um, what John makes very clear is that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Now next Saturday, I will be back in North Carolina speaking at a dear friend's funeral. Uh, she died way too young, young. She was a beloved violin teacher, played in the symphony, local symphony, and in worship, she could make that violin hum, sing in ways that you would think you were in heaven, the way she could play her violin. And I'll stand up at the beginning of the service and I'll say, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Words of comfort that encourage us uh, of the truth of what God has done for us in Christ. I want you to look at verse 18 right now. We're going to start there because it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Nothing can repel him from us. Nothing can separate you, my friend, from Jesus because not even your own sin. Uh, I have a good friend, and we were talking recently, and he really struggles uh, with believing that God loves him the way God says he does. And he might say something to me. He says, Clyde, I feel like Jesus or God is punishing me for past sins, past failures. Now he knows, and I know that's bad theology. That's a false narrative about God, but that's the way it feels to him. And he was sharing with me recently, he's been reading the book Gentle and Lowly, and, uh, and he was driving somewhere to meet somebody, and he just heard Jesus say to him, John, you know, I still love you even when you sin. And again, it was that connection to this presence of Christ in his story that he knew that even though he was sinning in his unbelief, in his fear, Jesus was saying, you know, I still love you. Um, this perfect love and understanding this perfect love cast out all, all fear. So what is this perfect love? Well, let's read about it in verse 9. Here it says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world. Now notice this, that we might live through him. We've been talking through this study how Jesus is constantly saying to us, Come unto me, come live in my story. Don't live in the story of your parents, of your employer, of politics. Don't let any other narrative control who you are. 
live in this reality that I am gentle and lowly of heart and I've come to give you rest, not that you would sleep or escape or be on permanent vacation, but that when you do your work, when you live your life, you're so alive in Him that you're being transformed for, uh, uh, through that. We live because He has done, uh, He's fulfilled the law perfectly. Now, this is so important that, again, uh, when you talk to people about how does someone come to faith in Jesus and if you're exploring the faith, uh, what we do know is people need to hear this message multiple times before it kind of clicks. Very rarely will somebody hear this simple message that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, For in Christ, we have this gift of uh, eternal life. Now you can hear that, but it doesn't connect to your heart. It doesn't register. But for believers and people, even once you come to know Jesus, to begin to understand the beauty and the perfect love that God has for us, a peace that many times, if you've grown up in the church and been around a lot of Christians, that's missed is this, that in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed, Romans 1, um, 16, 17, And what are we talking about? Well, I have a good friend who grew up in a church where when he was a little boy, it was taught this way. The SOS, which is around the law, means this, show us our sin. The law does show us our sin. It shows that we're unable to keep the law. It also shows us that we have a rebellious heart by nature. We're all born with rebellious hearts. So the law has a Uh, a powerful place why we need to hear it because it shows us our sin. Um, But it also shows us our need of our Savior. And so gospel and law, so the law, show us our sin. SOS, show us our Savior. But in the law of God, not only does it show us our sin, but it shows us our Savior. (laughs) This is really great news. Oh man, I wish I could sit down and just talk with you about it, pray over it. Because again, to have this pressed into your story, into your heart, is to know that in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed. Because the law, Jesus came to be the perfect son to keep the law for you so that you would begin to understand how the gospel works, how you can live this life and not be defeated by all the mistakes and failures and problems you have because the object of your faith is not your performance, but his perfect righteousness. Um, When I look at my life and the way I live my life as a follower of Jesus, I'm embarrassed so often by how quickly I can slip, fall, make mistakes, be cruel, be unkind, be mean. Um, And it's so discouraging. And I've been following Jesus for 50 years. I became a Christian in October of 1970. So, wow, you would think, what's wrong? But when I think about the church of Jesus Christ, I think about we're going to study the history of racism in the Presbyterian church through Morgan's teaching us. It's embarrassing. It's more than, it's awful. How the church failed to apply certain truths and misapplied the Bible to oppress people. It is awful. Um, But when I look at Jesus and what he did in keeping the law perfectly for me, that he delighted to do the law, he kept the law of God perfectly for me, to be the second Adam, the perfect son, I am unashamed. 
I am unashamed of who Jesus is and what he did for us when he kept the law perfectly for us. And this truth is the truth that when we think about revival, reformation, renewal, it is a truth that sets people free because you get next to the heart of Jesus and you realize he is gentle and humble because he knows he has fulfilled this critical piece of our acceptance with God is that he became for us by living a life we should have lived, we could not have lived, but he lived it for us. So the law shows us our sin, but it also shows us our Savior. Wow. Now, the good news of the gospel is not only has God given us uh, a righteousness through Jesus' faithful obedience in every way to the law, Jesus loves the law, but he was the perfect sacrifice. Look at verse 10 of this passage. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a fancy word for removal of the judgment that should have been ours, that there had to be a sacrifice made, that we all deserve to be cast out, to left behind, to be sent away from God forever and ever. But God has made a way through his son's sacrifice so that we could know this love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also are to love one another. You know, one of the great themes of any great story is usually sacrificial love, but it's usually substitutionary. And if we talked about English literature and great stories, there's always a substitutionary sacrifice that goes on in any great story by one of the characters in the story. So if I was to, we were to talk about Harry Potter for a little bit, and this is not a, you know, sort of a spoiler alert, but um, if you've read those stories, there's a great substitutionary sacrifice of that story. Uh, I mean, Rowling just in a magnificent way ties all those books together. But again, I could just keep going and talk about the power of someone who lays their life down so that Life might go on, there might be freedom, you name it. But in the gospel, in Jesus' death for us, is to believe that when Jesus died on the cross for us, it unleashes the love of God that not only gives us blessed assurance and freedom and confidence, but it changes people, it changes cultures, it changes everything. The gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, changes everything. Now, one of the reasons why you should come to church, you might not be that interested in what the Bible says or what Jesus is. I want to give you good, some good references for good movies to watch. Okay, so here's the pastor's recommendation. If you haven't seen this movie and you want something that will really inspire you and show you in a practical way how the gospel works to change cities, communities, if you haven't seen the movie The Best of Enemies based on a true story in Durham, North Carolina, 1971. I would encourage you to watch that movie. It will thrill you to see the power of, on the one hand, this African-American woman who is an activist for her community, for her schools, for her kids, for her family, and a guy who is a, a leader of the Klan in Durham, the Ku Klux Klan, how they work through stuff, and you can see it coming, you can know it's coming, sort of, but the way at the end, 
They become best of friends. And what doesn't ruin it for you to watch this, but it is so powerful. I mean, sometimes you watch things, you go, man, I wish I hadn't watched that, or that ah, was okay, it was kind of boring. I was so inspired. I had a hard time going to sleep after we watched that movie, The Best of Enemies. And it's appropriate, probably age 16 and up. It's just like, wow, it's such a powerful thing. And again, I could keep going, but this righteousness, this sacrifice that Christ has made made for us is powerful. So we have the perfect son, we have the perfect sacrifice. (laughs) And now let's talk about the perfect peace that God gives us, his shalom, that we live with a bold confidence that love wins, that God wins. Uh, actually, that's a great name, God win. And, you know, it's just like it, it fits with what we're talking about here. But Isaiah 26, 3 says, listen for this. He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in you. Isaiah 26, 3. If you're living with a lot of anxiety, if you're living with a lot of insecurity, this is a great verse to go look at and then build it out in the context of God promises to keep you in perfect peace, deep assurance, humble confidence. But here's what happens is the world comes at us, the devil comes at us, we see our shortcomings and failures, and rather than engage our culture, engage in the needs of our society, engage in helping those who are less fortunate than ours, we just kind of get backed off, we back off, we get numb, we get indifferent. We get apathetic. But when you know the love that John's talking about here, it will transform a church like Christ the King to a different level of experience and knowledge of God than you ever thought possible. And that story is lived out over and over in the history of the church, but even now the gospel is running in different parts of the world in amazing ways. Because what John's talking about here is that this perfect peace, which comes from the perfect son, the perfect sacrifice, gives people confidence to say, we will overcome. We will overcome. We will overcome the injustices in our society. We will overcome the problems with racial alienation. We will overcome because our God reigns. And that's what John is so inspired about, and I can just keep going and going. But I'm going to slide now just to this. So we talked about the perfect son, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect peace. Now, here's the, here's the thing to hang on for, is that God has a perfect will for your life. It's absolutely perfect. Can't add to it, can't subtract to it. Just like his love for you is never going to be higher or lower than it is right now, it's perfect. God has a perfect will for your life. So listen to this, because many of you have memorized these verses. And again, think about, what what does this mean for me today? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Romans 12, 1 and 2, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is that? What is God's perfect will for your life? Well, it's to know this love, 
but it's to know that your calling is to live a life where you show people the heart of Jesus. His perfect love for you revealed in the gospel so that when people begin to get to know you and see how God is shaping your character, here's what they would say, I learned from her that God's love is irresistible. I learned from him that God's love is unforgettable. It is the most important. It is the thing that is over everything. It is to know the truth for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And that thrills me. I am not ashamed of who Jesus is. Am I embarrassed about myself? Absolutely. Am I embarrassed about the church? Absolutely. But I am unashamed of who Jesus is. Because John is going to say, and you know, he's going to quote a gospel job, and he's going to say, who is it that overcomes the world? It is the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ. If you have that kind of confidence, you will be lion-hearted. You will say, put me, I want to be on the front lines of the civil rights movement. I want to be on the front lines of solving gun violence. I want to be on the front lines of talking about climate. I want, I want to be engaged in my culture because of who Christ is. He has committed to make his glory real to us in a way that we shall overcome. Wow. So powerful. So good. Um, when I was uh, uh, a sophomore in college or junior college, I can't remember, this friend of mine and I, we, um, we had plotted out uh, backpacking through Europe after our spring semester. So we're going to fly and, and just travel throughout Europe, end up on an archaeological dig in Israel. And that was our plan. That's what we were going to do. And so, um, so we fly. We land in London. It's an overnight flight. We're kind of sleepy, but we're excited. We find our hostel. We put all our gear down. We just start walking around. So we walk into the area, Piccadilly area, where all these shows are going on. It's late afternoon, early evening. People are lining in to go into like Broadway shows. And we're just kind of looking around and we're standing around going, wow, I wonder how we could get tickets. And, you know, we were crazy enough. We just started talking around. People said, well, if you wait to the last minute, if they don't sell tickets, you can walk up to the ticket counter and you can go in and you can see uh, a show. Oh, great. Awesome. So again, this is 1973. Um, and so, uh, so I see up on this banner, Godspell. You know, this is when the musical Godspell came out. And I go, man, I would love to see that. And as I'm walking up, somebody's walking away. Don't worry, it's sold out. But, you know, crazy enough, I go to the window. And I say, are there any tickets left? And the woman says, actually, there are two tickets here. They have not been claimed. I'll sell them to you for the regular price. And then she looked up and she said, and they're box seats. Whoa, box seats. So if you've ever been to small theaters like on Broadway or in London, where box seats are right over the stage. So my friend and I are on, I mean, we're just, we're right here. Here's the, here, I'm seeing all the actors and I'm hearing this unbelievable music uh, and I hear this song that would stick in my head and it rings today. And I thought about it when I was looking at this passage th this morning. Um, day by day, 
to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, to follow you more nearly because, again, of your love for me. Now, do you know the background of the story? So, uh, the hymn, which is in the liturgy in the Church of England, was written by Richard of Chichester in 1253. Those lines, to see him more clearly, to love him more dearly, to follow him more nearly day by day. So here's a quick background on him. He was a tireless student of theology, a man, constant in devotion to the Lord, and one whose life was filled with unselfish service to others. Although he was born to a prosperous family, Richard was orphaned at an early age and soon impoverished by a negligent guardian. He entered Oxford, unable to afford even a gown or a fire in winter. Yet he did very well in the studies and was eventually able to go on to further study at the University of Paris and at Bologna. He returned to England as a small-town parson, a role he always loved. However, his fame as a counselor and preacher soon spread far and wide. Against the wishes of King Henry III, Richard was consecrated as the Bishop of Chichester. The king denied him access to the cathedral and to the bishop's palace. So Richard spent two years wandering barefoot throughout his diocese. He lived very simply on the charity of his flock. When the quarrel with the king was finally settled and Richard moved into the palace, he lived there almost as a beggar, wearing a hair shirt, fasting off it, and sleeping on the floor. Yet he entertained the poor lavishly and ultimately willed his Episcopal estate to the poor, to hospitals, to widows, and orphans. And he is the guy that wrote in 1253, day by day. You see, to know the love that John's talking about here is to want to know the one who makes that love possible. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful uh, this morning for, again, this love that will not let us go. And I pray, Jesus, you'd help us again as we come now to this table. I pray that you'd help us to see you more clearly, to be more in love with you, and want to get closer to you than we've ever been. So, Jesus, would you work the wonders and the mystery of the gospel in us? We pray in your name. Amen.